It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's edition of The Group Chat. I am news correspondent here at Virgin Media News, Richard Chambers, joined by my fellow news correspondent, Zara King. Hello, how are you? And political correspondent, Gavin Riley. Richard, how are you? Good, yeah, not too bad. Um, obviously, the news agenda um, is still very much being dominated by the events of a couple of weeks ago in Dublin, uh, both the stabbing and the subsequent riots that followed. A uh, quick update on uh, the five-year-old girl who remains in a critical condition in hospital at the time of recording on, on Wednesday. Uh, the girl's mother on a GoFundMe set up um, to benefit uh, the girl in question said, Dear all, thank you all so much for your incredible gesture and kindness uh, that you have shown our family during these troubled times. Your thoughts, prayers and generosity have and will go a long way. Our little girl has shown incredible strength and is still here with us. We don't know yet what lies ahead as it is still early, but she is resilient and limitations will not stop her. Thank you so much. All the love we can give. Investigations into that incident uh, still ongoing as we speak and also into the riots that followed. But Helen McEntee, Gavin, mm. has survived the political fallout of this for now at least. In, in a way almost more reinforced and reassured than she was uh, two weeks ago before the whole thing kicked off. And this is sometimes the results or the outcome of confidence motions that not alone does the government in- inevitably always win them anyway because that's how governments work. If you have a majority in the doll. That's how you get to stay in government. Um, but the the volume of the victory, I think, took a lot of observers by surprise yesterday. The vote on Tuesday night, 83 votes to 63. And one might think that when there were so many questions about the standard of policing, the resourcing of policing, Helen McEntee's hands-off approach to the conduct of policing, the hands-off approach of Angarda Siakana to Farai protests, there's a lot of reason to think that Helen McEntee might have been in some notional trouble or that the margin might have been a little bit closer. Um, in a way, this is almost the best case scenario for the government at the end of all of this because once the doll has decided Helen McAtee is safe in post, there's basically politically nowhere else for it to go. Like really telling that at Leaders' Questions on Wednesday, the day after the night before, Sinn Féin was back to talking about the cost of rent and other more everyday bread and butter issues, not talking about the fallout of two weeks ago. So Helen McAtee, um, oddly secured. And also one thing I did notice about the doll debate was that ordinarily in motions of confidence, you can have a situation where the speaking slots are dominated by the party colleagues of the person being discussed. So previously, there's been a motion of no confidence in Dara O'Brien. Most of the speakers would have been from Fianna Fáil saying, Fianna Fáil is doing X, Y, and Z, or Fianna Gael is doing X, Y, and Z, or the Greens, whatever. It really telling that there was like a real unity of purpose mm-hmm. among the three coalition parties on Tuesday when they were participating in that. There was no sense of she belongs to another party, but we're shoring her up because we have to. There was like actual endorsement of what the agenda was. And a lot of uh, Fianna Gael types basically thought it was like one of the best days of their lives because they just got to spend two and a half hours in the doll just shouting broadsides at, at Sinn Féin and questioning their allegiance to law and order. Yeah, and I suppose like in many ways actually what it has done is it's totally reaffirmed Helen McEntee's position. It's As you say, it's sort of strengthened it actually because she has that backing. It was interesting last week. Sinn Féin took their time to decide though whether or not they were going to call that motion, didn't they? Because we thought we'd get an answer on Thursday and I know I was at Leinster House on Thursday and they were sort of hemming and hawing about whether they would do it. Do you think maybe in some way Sinn Féin might regret calling that motion? 
Possibly as quickly as they did, because there, firstly there is that sense that uh, now that the doll has affirmed her position, there is basically nowhere else for it to go. That short of there being any other major disorder in Dublin, it's kind of hard to know where it would go from here. Um, but there is a school of thought that Sinn Féin found itself boxed into this corner because there was the controversy over the use of the photograph of someone on the doorstep beside Gwelsko Kolosh the doorstep in which the stabbings took place the previous week. Uh, a photograph of somebody slumped over drinking a can of beer. Mm. This was presented, tweeted by Mary Lou. Um, the man was semi-anonymous, but there was nothing done to try and uh, anonymize him or make him unidentifiable. Tweeted by Mary Lou McDonald as a, some evidence of poor policing in the aftermath of the attack. And then a photograph of the same man held up in the doll chamber by Louise O'Reilly. That was so widely panned that quite a number of people, including those that were on Sinn Féin's side ultimately, think that the whole thing was a ruse, ultimately an attempt by Sinn Féin to try and reclaim the agenda, that they were playing defence on something of a propaganda-owned goal that some people thought they needed to fire off some other big bazooka to distract the debate. Now, whether that is totally true or not, I don't know. But it's interesting that even Sinn Féin's own sympathisers think that it might have been a bit of an own goal and that the the motion to unseat Helen McEntee was as a response to reset the narrative a bit. Actually, Richard, you don't look too impressed. Uh, yeah. Like some of that, even in Gavin, what you're sort of saying about some Fine Gael people almost thought it was the best day of their lives. Kind of, given the subject matter of what this was all called about, I kind of find that a bit... Mm. That's that's Important. pretty lame. That's, mm. that's really bad bad stuff, to be fair. Uh, and speaks to a lot of cynicism that a lot of people feel about politics, that everything is just purely down to political points when it mm. comes down to it, as opposed to what's actually, you know, a very, very serious matter. Yeah. Um, so that's not great uh, in terms of the seriousness with which people take the matters at hand whether that's, you know, policing and safety in Dublin, the far right, or generally just, you know, all of the other issues which have come up in justice over the last number of weeks and months as well. So, yeah, like I do think that it was probably, I think people in Sinn Féin would probably admit that mm, maybe they pulled the trigger on it too quickly because I remember it was actually on the Friday, the day after um, mm. the knife attack and the riots that Mary Lou Macdonald was out on Parnell Square and she was saying that she had no confidence in the Guard Commissioner and she had no confidence in Justice Minister Helen McEntee called on both of them to resign. So that was very immediate. So mm. there is an element of maybe that was a bad idea. Um, although a lot of people, you know, in the two government parties, well, the two major government parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, were not happy at all with how Helen McEntee had performed. Mm. So some of them were privately sort of saying, well, I don't know how much road she has left to run here, given the multiple controversies and justice up until this point and then something as serious as what happened you know on the 23rd of November. I think there was a sense though in Sinn Féin from even speaking to Louise O'Reilly say last Thursday which would have been one week on from the riot at the time you know when they were trying to consider whether or not they called the motion there definitely was a sense that they wanted accountability from someone in power about what had happened in the loss of control in Dublin City and that um there definitely was a feeling that despite the fact that the, the day before remember on the Wednesday the commissioner had been before the Oireachtas Justice Committee yeah. for about three hours Louisa Riley was like three hours before the Rockstar's committee is not enough. You know, we still need accountability. The truth of the matter was that, you know, yeah. there was a loss of control and, there. And what other scalp do you go looking for then in those circumstances? Because then the two at the top of the table. Yeah, and, it, yeah. and it's not up to the doll to decide whether the Garda Commissioner gets to stay in the post. And if, if Sinn Féin announced that they're removing a motion of no confidence in Drew Harris, then what happens the next time there's a general election Sinn Féin come in and they've already declared they don't like the guy running the guards then mm. suddenly the guy running the guards is forced to resign almost immediately and that's a situation you can't really get into so there was nobody else to, to go looking for to go hunting for other than Helen McEntee um, on your point Richard about how tone deaf it might be for Fine Gael to sort of treat a, a debate like that as something of a, a victory lap an interesting illustration about how the public and politicians move in totally different lanes is that the public will have seen the debate on Tuesday 
as being entirely centred on what happened in the, on the streets two weeks ago and the fallout and whether it should have been seen coming. When government sees a confidence motion, what they see is is an opportunity to talk about the last three years. There was an election in 2020. Here's all the stuff we've done since then. Look how many more guards there are. Look how many more overtime hours there are. Look at all the kit that we're buying them. Look at all the legislation we've passed. They don't treat it as a debate on the last two weeks. They treat it as a debate on three years. Is that a mistake like, on their part then, surely? Well, that's kind of a joke, to be honest, yeah. because literally the, the, the matter at hand is a vote of no confidence in the Justice Minister, mm. which was called in the aftermath of yeah. the Dublin stabbing and riots. So for any party, and I think there was an element of par- politics being played by Sinn Féin as well in doing that. And they've had multiple no-confidence motions now at this point in time, which have fallen flat in their face. Yeah. Um, like to go on and just raffle on about, you know, there was a lot of, and, and Fine Gael were very quick as well in terms of what they were cutting and putting up online mm. in, from the debate itself. And there was a lot. There was a lot of we show them, mm. you know, what we're made of. You we show, guys, law and order. Yeah. yeah, We'll show you. So, like, that's not, that, I, don't, I just don't think that's great. It, it, it does p- paint a picture to me, at least, that there's a, like, if you were the average person sitting and watching that, that again, the issue and the matter at hand is mm. completely lost uh, by people just, you know, yeah, boo, politicking in the doll. What do you think, Zara? Yeah, and I think as well, like, to kind of look at it more broadly from, as you said, Richard, the public's perspective, like, you have to look at it and ask yourself, does the public have confidence in the capital city and does the public have confidence in spending time now in the capital city in the wake of all of this and all the conversations that have taken place? And, you know, all of us have received messages from people over the last couple of weeks and some of the messages that come through are people saying, like, we'd normally have our shopping trip to Dublin every year, we're not going to go this year or people reconsidering their plans, (coughs) excuse me, and changing their arrangements. So, like, I suppose what's happening inside the gates of Leinster House is one thing, but, like, actually what's happening outside and in the middle of the city centre and in the capital at this really important time of year... um, I don't know, there is, I mean, I hate, we say it all the time, it's cliche, there's a disconnect there, Richard. Like there's definitely, you know, point scoring politically happening behind the gates and outside you've got, you know, a busy time of year, people should be out celebrating and enjoying each other's company and actually, you know, people have concerns and that's, that's just a very real thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, he, I think it was on Saturday <laughs> or Sunday, he was out, I was working the weekend and he said that it was all a stunt and this is a time when all par- political parties need to focus on extremism and what's happening. Mm. So... I mean, that wasn't exactly shown in the doll by anybody. No. Um, and I think, well, look, if it's if it's now that matter is dealt with <laughs> in terms of whether or not the justice minister should continue on. Well, now I'd like to see probably a, a little bit of unity, maybe yeah. in terms of the, mm-hmm. the seriousness of the matter at hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that would be something which I think they could and should probably mm-hmm. move on to quite quickly. That, that, that does not in its own way, though, illustrate the hypocrisy of Fidigail spending the whole time shouting about Sinn Féin and their previous record. That if you can't, you spend the last 12 days saying what we need now is unity. People don't want division, they want unity. And the subtext of that is the unity behind me. So it's time that we all now rally together mm. behind us, the ones in charge. If you want everyone to rally together, you can't spend two and a half hours of dull time shouting about the lads on the other side. You should be talking in more constructive tones about what you're doing and how you will deal with a, a real and growing threat to public order rather than saying like, ah, but, you know, you guys in the IRA need to be a bit more condensed than that. I want to talk about a couple of the actual issues um, which sort of have resulted from uh, the 23rd of November, but just on the politics point before we move on from it. Is is Helen McEntee, is she actually home and hosed in relation to this matter? Because we're still very early on from what actually happened Mm. and in terms of, you know, whether or not the Guardi had gotten this right in terms of how they've handled this matter and the step-by-step incremental nature of mm. some of these protests and violence that we've seen at protests for a long time now. It's a bit early on to say, okay, she's now secure in this and the government is is in the clear with regards to how they tackle the far right and, yeah. you know, disorder in Dublin. Yeah, well, again, this is another way in which 
politics moves at a different lane to the rest of the, the public. Uh, so politically speaking, because she has survived a motion of confidence in the Dáil, there can't be another one for six months. So short of there being some massive government collapsing scandal, nobody in the Dáil is allowed to try and pull the stunt again until the first week of June, if the government even survives that far. Um, but as regards whether she is out of the woods, well, you know, patently not, because there's obviously a still a, a present threat to public order. There's still the, the same group of antagonists that might have instigated what happened two weeks ago might still do so again. Who knows what the trigger point or the, the boiling point for that might be, but there might well be one. And also don't forget, by the way, the subplot of this week is that she's also been accused of misleading the doll over whether Twitter slash X was taking down inflammatory material. She went into the doll last week and said that the officers in Store Street were trying to get material taken down off various sites. TikTok and Meta were perfectly playing ball, she was told, and that X wasn't. Uh, and she went into the doll and repeated that as gospel. Leo Varadkar also said, by the way, he was also at the same meeting and heard the same thing. But X says that as a matter of course, they weren't in, asked to take down anything until four days after the riots and they were only asked to remove one post. So how can Helen McAdee say that they weren't complying if X say that they didn't receive any formal notices? Now, maybe it's an ambiguity of wording, but one would wonder why both Helen McAdee and Leo Varadkar came away with an impression that X said was not true. And who, who's the good faith actor there and how yeah. did such a massive misunderstanding come to arise? And can I ask you, is, was that the case that they had to be asked to take it down? Though? Like, were TikTok and Meta had to be asked as well or did some I mean, of them act that, on their I mean, own, of their own volition? Or? There could well be the semantic okay. argument, which is a difference to it. But X right. said, we weren't asked to remove anything until Monday night. So how can mm -hmm. Helen McIntyre then have spoken to guards two days after the riots? and be told that X wasn't cooperating when they had been asked. Well, we'll wait and see because we, we need to figure out if what X says is true that, yeah. and what not. Like, X, I still hate calling it X. I know. It sounds so stupid. It's called Twitter. Twitter. It's called Twitter. People call it Twitter, okay? So Twitter um, put out a tweet um, in relation to uh, what Helen McIntyre had said. They said, this is inaccurate. We've proactively taken action on more than 1,230 pieces of content under our rules relating to the riots. 1,200? Uh, yeah. So that's nothing. And they Sorry, said, we met with the Commission man on November 24th, which is the day after the riot and whatnot, to discuss our response. Uh, the guard did not make any formal requests to us until Monday the 27th. Um, I'd love to know, I think if Twitter is serious about this, it should probably detail some of the material that it did take down mm -hmm. uh, and what are you know, it says to take action rather than taken down as well. So whether or not they put up a little community notes flag or whatever it was, and given the material which was on Twitter.com yeah. and which was promoted by Twitter.com and which is paid for by Twitter.com and which people pay Twitter.com to put up on their website, yes, yeah. um, you probably have to take, you know, a little pinch of salt with that yeah. though. Are you one week off from that? How are you finding it? Absolutely great. It doesn't, it doesn't, <laughs> make, an, it doesn't make an ounce of difference but, to my life. But now that you're calling it Twitter, we can't call you an XX user. Um, yeah, you can't actually. But actually, something more seriously I want to talk about, because I was actually only chatting to a guy um, yesterday in relation to this. He's a guard who was on public order um, unit yeah. duty mm. on the evening of the riots. Um, and some people might have seen his report or his report or his story was covered anonymously in a couple of the newspapers. Mm. He'd been badly injured and he told me this himself a couple of weeks before, or, well, just after the riots. He had um, basically had to two toes broken at the time is what he thought it was. He since had one of his toes amputated and the other one is still in bad nick as well. He's getting married this week um, oh, no. and honeymoon next week as well. He is quite devastated about the whole matter. Uh, so we're thinking about him um, because it's just a terrible time. He'd actually only been on to me literally before the riots. Um, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, asking me about running tips because he was looking to do a half marathon. Oh, wow. Um, and yeah. Suddenly that's what happened. This happened. God. So yeah, so that's, um, that's, that's a difficult one for him. And um, I think that... Um, 
anecdotally as well, like it has been a tough time for a lot of the people who are on duty, mm. whether that was in the Gardaí, Dublin Fire Brigade, you know, in the HSE, and a lot of nurses have yeah. reported a lot of problems that they had on the night as well. So, um, yeah, there's a lot which has yet to been to be fully resolved as a re- in result of all this. Definitely, and I think just that that point you make about them getting married this weekend, actually, you know, the knock-on impact it has to their friends and family and the people who love them as they go out onto the front line and work in these conditions. And we, you know, obviously think about the couple as they head into their wedding this weekend. We wish them the best of luck, but obviously it's a very difficult circumstance to be facing into your wedding on. Well, the United Nations now says that there is nowhere left to go for people in Gaza, as Israel has said, it's been engaged in some of the most intense fighting of the war so far as it moves towards southern Gaza, around the city of Khan Yunus, uh, and then further on down south in Gaza as well. Um, the devastation of this war coming off the back of the the extended uh, humanitarian pauses that we did see for the prisoner and hostage exchange um, I think it's probably dawning on the world just how bleak the situation is. It's probably worse than it ever has been mm. coming off the back of those pauses, given the intensity of what we've seen. Like we've talked before about what some of the Palestinian journalists have been sharing on Instagram. Mm. A lot of people are showing, showing sharing what Motaz has been sharing over the last couple of days. Oh, and his account has been so devastating this week. Yeah. It's been, I mean, but even it kind of makes you realise that um, as the storyteller on the front line, you know, sometimes it's easy to forget that he's living that as well, actually, and that yeah. it's his lived experience. Mm. You know, it is. And I, I, I saw, uh, when I was putting up on Instagram stories the other day, I described him as probably the most influential journalist in the world right now. 100%. I think by a, by a huge distance, he is. Yeah. Um, he has himself started to post about how he is probably going to have to stop doing updates as such because his own situation is so unsafe. He has reported gunfire and tank shells in the area where he has been in central and southern Gaza. It's taking a huge, huge risk to to film and to shoot everything that he has been doing. And still, as Sky's um, diplomatic and international editor says, you know, journalists want to get in there. They're just not being allowed in. So these are the only people uh, who are showing an independent look as to what's happening in Gaza. Yeah, that was actually a really important point. It was, was it Ice Crawford that was making that it point? Was it was Crawford, a really, yeah. really important point because people are presuming that, oh, Gaza is just very difficult to get into or because the food security or energy security is so weak in there that a lot of people are just dissuaded from going in. Actually, no, a lot of people can't get in because the, the primary way to access Gaza is by entering through Israel. And if Israel decides they won't facilitate you with access, there's nothing more you can do. Um, I was just reflecting that this time last week, we were talking about what was still at the time an extended ceasefire and we were sort of hoping that one ceasefire might beget another and beget another and actually that made it all the more depressing when I think the first sentence you said Richard was that the UN now says there is nowhere safe to go and and just the, the gravity of that sentence and how how you know may, maybe because our, our attention domestically we might have been distracted for the last couple of weeks you'd forget just how much this was becoming so much grave graver by the, the day the idea there's nowhere safe to go mm. that they're they're handing out daily maps sending people to s- s- purportedly safe areas mm. and then there's attacks there anyway it's nowhere to go 80% like, of people in Gaza which is more than 1.8 million people have left their homes and now obviously a lot of those homes are no longer exist don't exist um of course, at the start of the war, Israel told people to move to the south. Now that they're focusing their attacks on the south, you're effectively hemmed in in a very, very small piece of land. Um, shelters are now almost non-existent. People are hiding in rubble in many cases. UN schools, UN clinics are completely, you know, under the cost at this point in time. And as well as that, you mentioned the, the, the maps and the sort of people have been given evacuation orders. People mm. might have seen online 
one of the ways which Israel is doing this at this point in time is that they're publishing an online map, a grid system. So they've divided Gaza into 600 little boxes mm. and they're telling people in, say, box 314, out you go, evacuation order. Uh, and the only way to access this map is via QR code and online. When connectivity is... The vast like majority of Gaza had no arrival. longer has power nor do they have any internet connectivity. Mm. Um, so a lot of clinics in there have been saying, well, this is this is like a macabre game of battleships. It's like, you know, which which box are you going to move into to save your life mm. when there's no guarantee that, that place won't be bombed either. So there is international pressure, I think, on Israel to sort of clarify what it's doing in terms of international humanitarian law. But this is, I think things are, I think, in terms of actual attention from members of the public here on it, I think this period over last week has probably been the most intense, I think, since the war began. Yeah, I do think so. And I think it's really interesting to see people who, you know, wouldn't necessarily work in news and current affairs or in this particular field, you know, really just posting up online that they feel so uncomfortable about talking about anything else at the moment because they just feel like, what like what else can we talk yeah. about? What else can we say? And, you know, people who would normally share certain types of content, say on Instagram, that they're just like, listen, I, I just can't do this this week. I can't, you know, I'm opening up my, my app and I'm seeing all these pictures. Um, and going back to the point that you're making about that important account that we're getting from the front line inside Gaza from Palestinian journalists, you know, when we see, say, you know, foreign correspondents getting access to Gaza in the last few weeks, it has generally been under the supervision yes. of the IDF. And it's important mm. to say that. And, you know, CNN has been really clear in saying, just so you know, the report you're about to see has been pre-approved by the IDF, basically. Not so what does that mean? What, the, yeah, pre-approved, does that pre-approved mean that the IDF... Pre-approved is the wrong word, actually, sorry, it's the wrong word. It's more that, like, uh, these pictures were cleared by yes. the IDF after oh. we shot them and also our script had to be sent for clearance from the IDF. So, you know, if one of us was in there covering this, that we would have to, you know, go with your camera person, you are brought around by an IDF soldier to film bits that you're basically brought to. You're not allowed to step outside of the zones that you're, you're not brought allowed to. to, speak to people. So, like, in a lot of ways, like, it's a very sanitized, not sanitized, but it's a very monitored and controlled but like you can understand why the likes of CNN and Sky will take that access because of course you'll take any access you can get mm. but it is an it's not dilemma. the same though it it's, is, not, yeah. it's an ethical dilemma and it's totally not the same as the coverage you're going to get from um, is it Mozart is how you pronounce it? Motaz yeah Motaz mm. Motaz um, I would highly recommend following Motaz but I would also give a, a health warning on that that it's very raw and it's the footage is you know it's just very upfront and it's 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 literally as it's happening mm. Um and that in itself is difficult to consume for people. But yeah, you're right, Richard. I do think that like even people listening to the podcast now, I'm sure will probably feel the same way that um, the longer this goes on, the more devastating and upsetting it is and the more sort of helpless people feel mm. because you think, how can we all stand by and see this unfolding and have no power to stop yeah. it? I get that. I really get and that. that. That's a particularly grave aspect of what's happened in the last few weeks because at the start of all of this, you know, there was the criticism that the likes of Ursula von der Leyen had been unqualified in her support for Israel and that the United States, which is a traditional ally, was four square behind them as well. There has been that notable uptick in like the US rhetoric about all of this now that like this has to be qualified with minimising civilian loss of life and civilian damage. Mm. And Israel just now seems to be the point. I, this this shouldn't be seen as an inflammatory statement where Israel is just disregarding those calls from its greatest ally, the US, mm. and from the rest of the world. Where It, it still sees this as an existential thing that it can't exist safely alongside Hamas anymore and that it just won't stop until the whole thing has been obliterated, by which I mean Hamas and all of its infrastructure and everything else is just collateral damage to them far from that. But the idea that they're now so emboldened where even their 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 staunchest ally 
doesn't appear to be able to moderate their stance at all is is really gravely worrying. And just on the point about Gaza being split into 600 boxes, there was a very striking cartoon, I think from The Guardian, the Guardian yeah. um, the of one. the advent calendar. And l- lest it be forgotten how sensitive a time of the year this is mm-hmm. for everyone in the Middle East, that Gaza in one of those cartoons has been split into an advent calendar to almost replicate as if, oh, today is the 6th, today is the 7th, today is the day that you can move out of this area because we're going to blast it to smithereens. Yeah. I think it's just dreadful. I, and I think it's well, you know, it's uh, actually the point I would make as well is that, you know, we had sort of moments of happiness seeing like Ibrahim and his family come home, for example, and Emily Ham being released. And you can understand that there were moments where people, you know, felt that progress was being made. But the truth is like they're temporary lights at the end of a very dark tunnel, actually. And, you know, it goes back to the point we've made many weeks here on the podcast that like, the untold trauma that people have experienced. Mm. Like it's it's not even, it's not about today and it's not about, it's about this long-term implication for the human beings at the centre of this, I think is just, we just don't know, we just don't know yet how bad that's going to be. Yeah, and we don't know how long it's going to take. I was reading some headlines saying that, you know, Israel preparing for a year-long war uh, in Gaza. So look, we're, we're going to keep an eye on it. Obviously, we have a couple more podcasts before the end of the year. Mm. Uh, I'm sure it'll, it'll figure in those as well. So so do stay up to date with us on Virgin Media News. Zara, you've been working on a couple of things yeah. uh, domestically. Today, the news of four new special needs schools yeah. are opening. So that's, that is something positive. It is something positive. And we've talked a lot about school places. Mm-hmm. Gavin, in particular, you've, you've been really clear in talking about that as well, school places for, for children with special needs. So uh, four new special needs schools are going to open for the academic year next year. Uh, they are going to be in Limerick City, in Enfield and County Mead in Gorian County Wexford and in the South Kildare area. So this is good news in terms of, I suppose, investment in education and, and equal opportunities for all the kids, Gav. Yeah, so it, next year it's 120 pupils across all four of those, but that's with a view to expanding obviously future years because generally speaking, when you start a new school, you'll only start at the infant grades and then you'll work your way up. So yeah. you fast forward five or six years, you could have an enrolment of several hundred uh, pupils in those schools. And just the difference that, that makes because special school places are so difficult to come by mm. and there's so many stories of people getting bussed across cities. As a someone who is able to avail of a special needs education, you get free door-to-door transport to recognise the fact that your journey might be so far. And there's so many stories of people that are driving from like the north end of the M50 into the city centre or out to the opposite side of the city altogether. And that, that's just in Dublin mm-hmm. to access special educational places. So the idea that there might be finally more of them and new schools showing up with new role numbers c- can only be a good thing going forward. And as long as they are supported to keep doing what they're doing, is one rare instance where there is a, a bit of a bright light there. Yeah, it does. I mean, it definitely is. And, I, you know, I think it's kind of in all the times that we do criticise the government, I think it's kind of to acknowledge that this is obviously a positive development. Mm. Um, and, and that announcement was made by the minister today. And yeah, so that, that's a little bit of good news. Tell me, you're also working on um, the issue of traveller mental, mental health, which is yes. a huge issue, which has never gone away. It yeah. probably has never had as much spotlight as it needed to. Yeah. Um, but what exactly were you working on with that? So, yeah, so I just think it's, and I actually want to say, we'd love to come back to this again for a bonus episode. And I think, I think we, we will. will. Yeah. I think yeah. we definitely will because I actually think this is like, not just to mention it, to be a deeper conversation because for a lot of people listening, you may not realise that obviously mental health is, is a crisis across all of society, but particularly within the traveller community, you will see um, latest statistics showing that 90% of travellers will report dealing with mental health issues and 82% of travellers have experienced, you know, issues relating to suicide, whether they've lost a loved one or, you know, so it's a huge, it's a huge issue within the community, actually. And there is a disproportionate effect for for travellers, even compared to people in the settled community. So yesterday there was a demonstration, or so Tuesday there was a demonstration at Leinster House um, calling for access to services. You know, it's just even trying to get things like, um, 
it starts with basic things, right? So for example, you know, Mags Casey, one of the spokespeople for the National Traveller Mental Health Network was telling me that it's even things like integration is a starting point, right? So it's like getting access to join sports clubs, be part of communities, be involved. That in itself promotes positive mental health and it, you know, allows people to feel more accepted within the environment that they live in. You know, so that's a starting point, but also then crucially when it gets to the the end of the system where there's a need there for, you know, counselling and supports and actually, you know, positive mental health interventions, that none of it is there. They're saying that they've been have promises from government since 2020 that haven't been implemented. And they are so frustrated. And, you know, Mags Casey said to me yesterday, she said, like, Sarah, what do you think it is? Like, what, why do you think they're ignoring us? And like, the sad reality, you know, is that a lot of groups, not just this, feel the same way about government. It's like, how many groups do we meet outside the gates of Leinster House yeah. week after week after week who actually say the same thing? They ask mm. the same questions. I've said before, how many times do I meet families of kids with special needs who are fighting for the same things all yeah, the yeah. time? And I meet them mm. year after year and I go, I, you know, so I completely kind of understood what she was saying in terms of that frustration. But... Looking at um, the parents of young Patrick McDonough, who was a 12 year old boy who took his own life two years ago. Um, Patrick McDonough's parents, Michelle and Patrick Sr. were there yesterday and they were talking about the fact that young Patrick was being bullied relentlessly. And why was he being bullied? Because of his identity. He was being bullied because of who he was. And I asked a lot of the travellers that I met yesterday the same question. I asked them, do you think it's more difficult to be a traveller in Ireland today than it was in the 90s? 20 years ago, 30 years ago, do you think it's more difficult? And they said it's not getting any easier. Mm. And that is actually a damning indictment on all of us as a society. That is the fact yeah. that it's not getting any easier. The fact that, you know, travellers had, um, is it, what was the, is it ethnic recognition? Yeah, in I, I, was, I was there on the night. It was 20, 2016 or 17, 17 where Enda Kenny yeah. uh, formally recognised them as an ethnic minority yeah. within their own country in the Dáil. And this yeah. was, albeit didn't involve any particular measures, it was kind of seen as this, great, you know, panacea where Absolutely, it might suddenly be yeah. the recognition yeah. of their needs and that there might then be concrete steps afterwards to address that. But evidently, not but a tap. They really hoped that it would. They really hoped that this would be the turning point, that it would make a huge difference. And they do feel left down. They do feel disappointed that nothing has changed. You know, Mags Casey herself, who I say is a campaigner, has buried 29 members of her immediate and extended family as a direct result um, of suicide. So look, it's it's an ongoing fight for services and, and they're similar to other groups in that regard. But I think, you know, for people to understand that when you see 90% of people in, in a community saying they've been affected by mental health and not actually getting access to services, it's just really not good enough. No. Yeah, As you say, Zara, we'll probably come back and do a, a full so. bonus yeah, on it. I'd love to do here. that. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Uh, yeah. Moving on though, something which a lot of people have been looking for us to cover um, more extensively, and that is COP28. So this is, of course, where world leaders have come together to discuss addressing the challenge of climate change. Here's a clip uh, that we have from a Zoom call uh, dating from last month uh, from the president of COP28, this year's COP summit, um, speaking with our own former president, Mary Robinson. Will you lead on phasing out, phasing out fossil fuel with just transition, as I've, as I've said? You can, you can, I accepted to come to this, uh, to this meeting to have a sober and a mature uh, conversation uh, we do not, I'm not in any way signing up to any discussion that is alarmist. I am here factual and I respect the science. And there is no science uh, out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase out of fossil fuel is what's going to achieve 1.5. 1.5 is my North Star. And a phase down and a phase out of fossil fuel, in my view, is inevitable. There you have it, folks. Uh, courtesy of the Guardian newspaper, the president of COP28 says that there's no science 
which says that the complete phase out of fossil fuels is necessary to achieve the goal of preventing <laughs> what a the death of our planet. What a demented comment. Should we note for the record that he is not merely the president of COP28? It's pretty pertinent that he isn't just yes. that, that he has another job. Yes, which is that he's the chief executive of one of the state oil and gas companies for the UAE. So he's a man with slightly conflicted loyalties. So he's come, he's come back now. In fairness, in fairness to the man, he's come back and he has sort of said, look, he said it was taken out of context, as he would. Uh, and he said that, you know, that he thinks there's been disinformation and misinformation. He says that he's, you know, he's not in denial of any of the science. He says that they were misinterpreted. But this has provoked a huge amount of controversy at a time when people do not take world leaders seriously on climate issues. Yeah, Mary Robinson's face in that clip was just, I mean, it was quite polite, but you could tell she was probably like, what yeah, is going on here? Quietly seething. Yeah. The yeah. Idea. I mean, like, this, so this is the week where we were told that this year, after, after a whole other chain of years where that year was the warmest year on record ever, this is going to be another year where we're on record ever and we're now told that if the goal to try and limit the most extreme aspects of climate change is to limit the average warming of the earth to 1.5 degrees that actually we're now on course to basically reach three degrees which would mean double that which would mean such hostile weather that many parts of the earth simply will become uninhabitable and for the person then to be leading the global summit directly on the heels of this news to say oh, there's no science to say that phasing out fossil fuels will help that now like Science is fairly clear that the introduction and the mass, like rampant consumption of fossil fuels, has got us where we are. At the very least, like the, what was the, the Albert Einstein's idea of insanity was repeating the same thing over and, and over, expecting, it expecting something goes. different to happen. Yeah. Like even if there weren't any science, which by the way there is, wouldn't it be a good idea to just try something different anyway? Yeah. Is COP like what are your thoughts on COP? Is it? I have is thoughts. It, is, yeah. I, was, I, was, I suspect you might have yeah. thoughts on this. I, so. I mean, it's kind of like when people give out about the UN General Assembly every year and say, "Oh, it's a talking shop," and everyone just goes and hangs out and claps each other in the back and says whatever. But actually, it is about dipl diplomatic speed dating. We call it every year. But what about COP? Is it? Is it climate speed dating? Is it? Is there? What's the point? It's been it? so successful, really, in addressing the greatest crisis of our lifetime. And I would really love to take the opportunity to applaud all of the brave leaders yes, who nice have really taken the, the action that we need at this trying time. So well done to them. Uh, Al Gore, uh, former vice president of the US, mm. um, pointing out, and there has been a lot of, there's been a lot of reporting by the BBC and other organisations over the last number of weeks in the lead up to COP about the activities of both the hosts, uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia as well, in terms of what they've been doing to prevent the phase out of fossil fuels, because obviously their economies are completely dependent on it mm. thus far until they're, you know, yeah. figure something else out. Um, with relation to the president of COP28 and his, you know, his, his day job, basically, he said, Al Gore said the industry, i.e. the oil industry, is way more effective at capturing politicians than they are at capturing emissions. Um, so there has been a huge, huge, huge Good pushback um, in terms of people who are prominent speakers about climate issues, probably the most influential voices about climate issues. Um, and they feel that this is a mask slipping moment, that mm -hmm. people who mm. should and have the authority and have the power to do better and to yeah. influence global climate policy. It is mad. It is mad in the extreme that an oil company <laughs> president is the president of COP28. I know he defended himself saying he's full belief in the science and that, you know, we have to keep it under 1.5 degrees in terms of warming. And he said that he was an engineer, so therefore he gets science, which is... <laughs> The wrong type right. of science. Yeah. But um, um, yeah, there's been so many different groups which have come out now and said this yeah. is a complete joke. 
And how can they ever have faith in the process of, you know, world leaders and global summits to address these matters again? Well, may- maybe this might be then the uh, tipping point is such an overused phrase. But if, if it's the point at which we sort of, you know, reckon with the reality that some of the world's major petrostates do, do have this outlook, that you have to recognise some of the elephants in the room before you actually make any progress. Uh, one, one perhaps closing note of relative optimism. I was in Glasgow two years ago for COP26 when that was on. And I remember the discussion at the time about what they called loss and damage. The idea that you would compensate some of the countries that are worst affected by rising sea levels and extreme weather and whatnot. And two years ago, that idea was laughed out of the room. Absolutely not going to happen. COP28 now, it's it's firmly on the agenda and there might be concrete steps when it finishes to actually do that. So these things do happen like painfully, painfully slowly. But... Every year you talk about it, you do get it one year closer to maybe happening. I really okay. hope you're watching the telly and you can see Richard's face because he's absolutely they're, they're trying to move us on from the segment. Okay. I just want to finish off with one more quote from Al Gore. He says, from the moment this absurd masquerade began, this has been clearly discovered as the most brazen conflict of interest in the history of climate negotiations. He's finished off saying, as the science does, that the world needs to fade out fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Zara, have you got Riz? Have you ever Rizzed anyone up? (laughs) Excuse me. Raised anybody up? But Sarah's spoken for. You know, would you know? Okay, what would you would you know what I would talk about? I have if no I said idea. It? I genuinely, really? I feel it. I feel that's quite bad, but I don't know what that is. Gavin, uh, I am a happily married man for six years, Richard. I don't, yeah, have to I do don't need some to exercise at some most point, rizzing. Yeah. Uh, oh God! I don't think I'd be. <laughs> God, wow. We should explain what Riz means. Yes. There's a reason why we're talking about whether people have Riz. Riz is the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year for 2023. It is internet slang for romantic appeal or charm. Good bit of, a bit of flirtatiousness. I mean, it's shortened from the middle bit of charisma. I, was, I would have said charisma. Oh, yeah. Riz. Yeah. So that's yeah. Riz. Yeah. Very popular with young, young youngsters online <laughs> uh, using uh, other apps, using, including TikTok I and whatnot. I thought we were youngsters online. We are, well, we are well past that. We're not, okay. We're well past that. So but that is the word of the year. It is actually rare because I feel like anytime they've done this previously, mm. it's not a word that people use. Do you remember they used Youthquake was one of them? Uh, youthquake. Was, yeah, it was. Wouldn't you think that when the internet hot garbage is what it was? What's <laughs> youthquake? What does that mean? There God. was a big youth uprising, and there's loads of protests caused by young like people. Arab Spring, but just <laughs> only instigated by young people. But you'd think young people that, having opinions. When, God, how... when they introduce or when they decide that something is the word of the year, shouldn't it have a kind of a a long-standing resonance? It shouldn't just be some something that refers to uh, a flash in the well, pan. What, other, what other words are okay. on the list? There, there was a short list of words. Beige flag, right? Oh, yeah, I get that, so I get that. Yeah. That is a character trait that indicates yeah. that a partner or a potential partner is boring or lacks originality. Uh, something which is, you know, it 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 shows a blur. Formerly known as vanilla. Yeah. Yeah. 
Situationship, that's one everyone Yeah, everyone, everyone knows. That, that actually possibly could have been the actual winner. Because mm. I think that one's been uh, more I think Situationship is the most, I mean, it just, it's very descriptive of the thing that it is, I would say. But it also, it's not a word this year. It's a thing mean? that has existed for several years, though. Like, that, that word's been around. It's not so. new. But it, not it, new. it did capture, I think it was mm. probably more prominently used. Uh, heat, so there was a couple of more serious words as well. Heat right. dome relating to, you know, a persistent high pressure weather system over okay. a particular geographic area. Oh. Um, De-influencing, which is actually an interesting one. I, I see a lot of that now. But as you see, I, I don't think I've ever seen the word used, but it Never makes sense. Never seen the word used, so, but so I see the action happening. Like the, the idea of people shedding Where someone actually the... comes online and is like, this is actually not good, don't buy this. Is that not in its own way influencing? No, no, because like most people who are getting paid to like sell you something are not saying bad things about it. Whereas, yeah. So somebody whereas just actually a legitimate person going like on programming. I would say de-influencing is closer to actual consumer style journalism. Like, because I mean, it, it, it's yeah. where someone so takes something, they genuinely review it and go, actually, this bit about this is good, but this bit's not that so good. So make up your own Somebody mind. saying that a certain uh, high value, high end brand name air wrap hair dryer isn't, or hairstylist or curling wand thing isn't I'm not actually mad very about good. It. I've been saying for a while I'm not mad about it. Um, one of the other not words of the year. 500 euro for your girlfriend's Christmas. Just saying. <laughs> one of the other words of the year was Swifty which of course is an ah, enthusiastic yeah, fan fun. of the singer mm-hmm. Taylor Swift Time Person of the Year 2020. Gavin Riley revealing t- Taylor Swift yes. the Time Person no, of the Year I, I revealed it to the three of us just now I didn't reveal who it who was it last year was it Zelensky last year I think it was Zelensky last year because yeah, one Richard. thing which is important is that it was it, Zelensky and the spirit of Ukraine we, we, we should come back to Zelensky next week Zelensky's in bother yeah, oh. yeah. but anyway we'll mm. come back to it but Taylor Swift I think is a worthy winner of Person of the Year do you? In ter- well, I think you can't always have to give it in terms of, you know, a person of political Absolutely. resonance. Absolutely. I think sometimes pop culture and like just the scale of the achievements or the things that or the attention that was garnered by this person yeah. is probably yeah. worth it. Yeah. But um, yeah, pretty other, serious. Other uh, words of the year by alternative lexicons. Uh, Miriam Webster have described this year's word of the year as authentic, which is maybe a, a nod to de-influencing. Actually. Oh, you mean like as in like... Yeah, well, okay. not not alone just in celebrity culture and influencing, but also with reference to AI and how some culture is sort yeah, of artificially fair. generated that actually there is a value to authenticity. authenticity. There you go. It is it's a commodity, all right. What was last year's one? Last year's one was goblin mode. Do you remember goblin mode? No, I don't know what that no. is. It was uh, a slang term describing unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly or greedy behavior. Basically, people would say, I'm going into goblin mode because uh, I'm off work for two weeks or post whatever. Post-lockdown oh. behavior but lockdown. Yeah, just not interested in looking good or whatever, just staying at home. Oh, goblin mode. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. You used to call yeah, that yeah. exam face back in our day. Exam yeah. face? Yeah. Where oh. you just, so you know, when you're going through your college finals and you're basically not paying any attention to your physical look. I would I would like to wrap up the segment okay. with reference <laughs> okay. to uh, November, in November, Collins Dictionary. I'm not, not, you know, promoting one dictionary over the other. Right. When I tell you how bad their word of the year was. <laughs> other dictionaries are Other available. dictionary, Collins Dictionary revealed their, their word of the year was artificial intelligence. <laughs> It's not a word, it's two. It's two words. It's, it's two, two and it's also not something which just existed now. Boo oh. Collins Dictionary, you've been found out. No, no from Collins, us. no. Of course, this week marks the funeral of the late and great Shane McGowan, the former lead singer of the Pogues. But what is interesting about what's happened this year, uh, and he will, of course, be very much missed, especially at this time of year. Mm. Christmas Day, of course, his birthday, but probably his most... Christmas Day, his birthday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No way. That's, yeah. And this is why. This is why I say this. Phenomenal. In the UK charts, Fairy Tale of New York has never been Christmas number one. Right? Given how popular that is as a Christmas song, oh, it yeah. was beaten to number two 
uh, by I think it was Frankie Goes to Hollywood right. in its original year 1987 yeah, yeah. talk amongst yourselves while I go and look that Which up is the year before I, I was I wish born. we'd done our research yes. before this pod do your research <laughs> do your own research I think it's nicer when it's a um, but yeah so there's a big campaign now um because Lad Baby, I don't know if you've heard of Lad Baby. It's way too long to explain Lad so tiresome. Lad Baby had five consecutive Christmas number ones in the UK and they were all about sausage rolls. It was just complete, complete crap. Two years anyway. ago, uh, Lad Baby was in competition with Ed Sheeran and Elton John, who had a legitimate Christmas song to be oh. Christmas number one. And because Elton and Ed Sheeran were not going to win, they collaborated with Lad Baby, who was doing a knockoff of the same song where he was talking about wishing sausage rolls for everyone. And Elton John and Ed Sheeran's legitimate Christmas song was beaten into number two by their own collaboration with Lad Baby, taking the piss out of their own song. Okay, Actually, right. the Pet Shop Boys always on my mind as well. Which is a banger. Yeah. Great fair. song, fair yeah. play. Yeah, fair. But what's interesting then about what's actually then in contention, because Lad Baby's not doing it anymore this year. Lad Baby has stepped down. Okay. The iconic Lad Baby. It's like Michael uh, Schumacher giving up Formula One. Uh, the three songs which are in contention um, for Christmas number one okay. are all... Ancient. There is Fairy Tale of New York, which Classic, is very fabulous. much on the rise. Yeah. Last Christmas by Wham. One of my faves. Love it. Love it. Love and it. obviously Mariah Carey as well. An icon. So all three of these songs are. Well, straight away, I would. I, I feel bad not saying that it would be Fairy Tale of New York for me, but Wham last Christmas was just. I love it. Mm. Like, what is it about? What, what difference does it make to Wham to get Christmas number one this year? Isn't George Michael's birthday on Christmas Day? Is George Michael's anniversary is Christmas Day. Oh, sorry, it's his anniversary. Yeah. Oh dear. Okay. Um, but, <laughs> it was a oh. but no. But first of all, the fact that the, the, the sort of three contenders are all like '90s or later does that not just like speak terribly? Just about tells music? you. No. It tells you, Gavin. It tells you that the '90s were just the best. No, but just what it, it tells you is that modern, modern music is crap. If the last five have been lad babies, was it? No, um, yeah, well, last, or the or 80s, it's the late 80s. It's the 80s. So oh, so Mariah would have been the 90s. 90s. And then, then you love, oh, you love Last Christmas I think it's a, well. it's, it is my favourite Christmas you, song. You love it. Absolutely. And you do but, a lovely well, version it's of no The Darkness Christmas Time Don't Let the Bells End for 2003. I, However, I think you should sing Last Christmas on our podcast Christmas special. So I'm, I'm saying it I'm saying it here. I tune in after Christmas, you know. I don't want to put them off. But I knew you were going to say no. That's why I've asked you on camera. I think it would be a fitting thing to happen for the Pogues and Fairytale New York to get number one. Yeah, I know. Well, uh, the way that people can help, because pe- people maybe don't realise that this is how it's changed in the last few years, is that streaming now counts towards the charts. The Previously, the idea was, are you going into a shop and buying a single? Now, because the the advent of the iTunes era where you download a whole album, singles are kind of broken. So streaming counts. That's the reason why Wham! and Mariah are charting without ever having to put more singles in the shop, or that you don't even have to go and download it from iTunes for 99 cents, because if you just watch it on YouTube... And just counts. play it loads, basically, on yeah. your Spotify. So, there you go. That'd be the, the right. easiest way to do it. Easy way to achieve it is just get your Spotify premium and just leave the Pogues on repeat for that. What other Christmas months. songs are you playing at the moment in your car? Uh, that's a good question. A couple of really old, solely sort of ones. I haven't really I've listened to Otis the... I've got Otis Redding, White yeah, a lot. Great. It's Otis a great is a great Christmas singer. It's a great one. Um, yeah, I have a couple of others I can't really think of. Like, it's all very... like Driving Home for Christmas, I adore. There's that low one which was in the OC called Just Like Christmas. Great song. Send that to me. That's you can't break out the Chris Rea too early though. Yeah, like you I love Chris to... Rea. No, I'm driving around Dublin for. I'm driving everywhere for Christmas. It's December sixth. I, I don't care. Can't be well, driving over. Well, look, care. it's a song. But then it's really special when you actually drive home for Christmas. It's yeah. my favorite. I, we should give the last words in relation to Fairy Tale New York to Victoria Mary Clark, Shane McGowan's wife, who told BBC Radio 4's Today program that she's very much in favour of Fairy Tale of New York finally taking this oh. long awaited honour. She said it would be nice, wouldn't it? It would be. It should be the Christmas number one. It absolutely should. I'm very much in favour of that. Um, it is interesting that there is no 
contemporary challenges. And there often is, because it is a big, as you say, Gavin, it's a big streaming. Like Simon Cowell Amazon. broke it, basically, because this was the whole model but of Pop Idol and, and Pop Stars. The idea was that basically you were being released to be I love this for the one. second week in yeah. a row we're talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> just, nobody released. Always remember it. one true voice and they're lost to girls allowed yeah. back in 2003. <laughs> well, look, I hope nobody releases them in the, in the period between now and Christmas number one. Uh, but yeah, we're winding down the year. We have one more normal podcast to do, I think. Yeah, one mm-hmm. more normal podcast next week. And then we are recording a very special Christmas special for you. With some special guests. With special, everything. We're special multiple times. It's going to be brilliant. Right. Time wait. to go. We'll be back next week. Thank you very much for joining us. And yeah. thank you for listening and for watching us. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.